We'll be in verse 14 through 27 this morning, if you would stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 17, and beginning in verse 14, you follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, Not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Have you ever started a new job? And on your first day or within the first few days, maybe first few weeks, there was an orientation of some sort where either you read an employee manual or had to do some new hire training. In those types of scenarios, there's so much information that it seemed you would never remember it all. And in fact, you know you won't remember it all. Often the boss or the trainer might say, you'll never remember all of this information. But once you get out there and do the job, it'll all begin to make sense. The company that hired you is not wanting to bore you with paperwork, necessarily, and manuals, but they're wanting to stress to you the things that are of greatest importance to them, what they deem to be most important. It might be the company motto, the company's core values. That is what the main point is for your training, to begin to orient you to them. Yes, we know you've done other jobs maybe, sir, but here is how we do it. Here, it's good, right? I think often we can feel the same way when we read the Bible. We open the scriptures, we read a lot of words. We don't always know what it means or how we connect it with something else that we read maybe just a few days ago. We might read it and be overwhelmed with information and not exactly sure what this is going to look like when the rubber hits the road. But we know it to be God's Word, and because of that, and our reverence for it, I hope we come back to it regularly. So many rules, 
so many Old Testament laws, so many teachings of Jesus and all of the rules, 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 information, information, overload. And yet Jesus, when he's communicated with later on in the Gospel of Matthew, will ask, will be asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he begins to boil it all down to two. Love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. And the second is similar to love your neighbor as yourself. A lot of what Jesus said is not seen as all of these rules. All of these other rules that are out there, but two rules, in fact, when we boil it all down, and him beginning to continually take us as his followers back and forth, over and over again, showing us how it is in every situation, in all of these different circumstances that come up, some that go our way and some that don't, things that confuse us and things that excite us, how we, as his people, who are still sinners, saved by grace, can love him and desire, strive to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and begin to love our neighbor as ourselves. Some things in the Gospel of Matthew that we have seen before in our series together as we've walk through this gospel over the last 21, 22 months or so, sometimes we begin to see similar teaching, lessons given several times. The same command that's given earlier or a commendation given to the disciples we see and come back to again. Is it because Matthew has short-term memory loss and forgot what he wrote earlier in the gospel? Well, probably not. But it's because it's important. Jesus drives home a few principles over and over again with us. We could begin to look at the disciples and go, how do they not get it? And the fifth time we read something in the Gospel of Matthew, we go, what is Jesus referring to here? Because we're not quite getting it. And so God, in his kindness to us, repeats what he says. I had a teacher one time who used to always say, and he would repeat himself, I repeat myself for emphasis' sake, for emphasis' sake. And we would always wonder why he was repeating himself. But we didn't quite get it. In every situation, in every circumstance we face, God is desiring to continue to grow us. We can think of it when we look at the Gospel of Matthew and what Matthew is doing as we come to a section where Jesus, again, is going to say something he's said before, a couple of things. These important truths, we can think of it like a spiral in our walk with Jesus. Not a downward spiral in a bad way, but a spiral where we continue passing the same items, features, commands, teaching. But as we spiral, we begin to see them from a different perspective. We're a little bit further away, or we're underneath it, and we can see from below it. We're standing above it. We can see down on it. We're beginning to look at these commands Jesus gives from all of these different vantage points, all working towards, heading ultimately toward the same goal. If the goal is eternity with Jesus, then Jesus is continually working all things, all circumstances, all situations that we face, that the disciples have faced, towards that good end of eternity with him. That goal, Jesus knows, will make you and I ultimately happy. We'll have more joy in being with Him than we could ever imagine now. There's a lot of hope in that. In every situation and circumstance we face, God is desiring to grow us 
by continuing to bring us back to what is our heart loving? Do we love God with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourselves? Or are the circumstances we face exposing something else in us, something that we knew was there all along and have yet to take care of? This morning, we will see Jesus with his disciples in three different interchanges to help them continue to grow as he exposes a lack of faith, as he reminds them of their need for the gospel and to remember it, and he helps them discern how to live wisely until he comes. In these ways, we are learning how to follow Jesus with the disciples as we see similar commands or statements of Jesus in a different angle or light. As we look at the first section that we read earlier, verse 14 down to 21, we want to come away with knowing this statement, Christian, keep growing in your faith. Three commands as we look at three different interchanges Jesus has with his disciples, some longer than others, some involving other people and others not. Some we don't know exactly who Jesus is referring to as he talks to them. Matthew doesn't record that. But in all three, we can know for confidence that most likely the disciples are right there with Jesus. Sometimes, and even verse 19, it speaks of them going privately to Jesus. You remember, as we looked at last week, the disciples, three of them, have just come off the mountain with Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration as they were able to see him in all of his glory. And as we begin verse 14, we begin to see the disciples in less glory, don't we? Five times now, Matthew quotes Jesus using the phrase in the gospel, little faith. The disciples have little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Most every time, this is a direct reference to the disciples. The phrase is only found one other time in the New Testament, and that's in the Gospel of Luke. This whole story centers on the little faith of the disciple, not necessarily the healing of the boy. This seems counterintuitive for us. We um, automatically, if you're like me at all, you read this story and you begin, your heart swells for the boy who they've tried going to the disciples and the disciples couldn't heal him. And so in desperation, they come to the teacher himself, to Jesus, for healing. But when you look at the amount of text and space that is given over to the inability of the disciples to heal the boy, and what it is that Jesus says to them in response, we begin to see overwhelmingly that the meaning of this passage is the inability or the lack of faith of the disciples. And Jesus beginning in using this illustration, this miracle that is real, and that was really a person, not taking away from the person's condition, but seeing that the more important issue, what the text is driving us to, is the inability of the disciples because of their lack of faith. As we saw, a dad comes to Jesus. He's desperate for his son to be freed from these seizures that he's having, seizures that would throw him into a fire, throw him into the water, seizures that on their own might not be life-threatening, but what they're doing to him is life-threatening. I don't know if you've ever been with somebody when they have a seizure. I grew up with a, a brother who had epilepsy, still has epilepsy, and takes medication, and thankfully there's medication like that that can help that. But I remember one time as a child being in the kitchen, my brother had a knife in his hand and was cooking and had a seizure with a knife in his hand. And you begin to learn as a small child when you watch somebody 
maybe it's a brother or a sibling or a cousin or somebody have a seizure, you begin to know what to look out for, how to help them, how to turn them over so that they're not swallowing their tongue when they're gasping for air or when something else is happening. You begin to know it's terrifying. The dad is terrified. The dad desires help and healing for his son as anybody would. The dad comes to Jesus. He's desperate. He's gone to the disciples already. They can't cast it out. They don't know, I don't think, at the time that it's a demon. And please, let us be really clear. Every time somebody has epilepsy, it does not mean that there's a demon, okay? Do not go around casting out demons of people who are suffering with lots of other things. It'd be a horrible way to take this text. And yet, in this scenario, it is. And in this scenario, Jesus casts out a demon when the Father comes for healing, for epilepsy, or for seizures. Other gospel writers give a little bit more information regarding to this story. But here you have Jesus. The disciples can't cast out this demon. They can't heal the boy. And what we find from Jesus when he's interacted with his father is somewhat of a shocking surprise. The statement given by him, verse 17 Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebukes this generation, asks, how long is he going to be here with us? I won't be here with you forever. At some point, you are going to have to learn to do this on your own. At some point, you are the one responsible by your faith, to minister to others. I can't always be here. I can't always be the one. I've trained you. I've sent you disciples out to do my ministry, to do the work that I've called you to do. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. The disciples could have really felt shame here, could have really wallowed in their shame because of their inability to do what Jesus can do. But instead of leaving the disciples here to wallow in their inability, Jesus reminds them that they are not God. They cannot access the power of God on their own. They on themselves, in themselves don't have power to heal. In and of themselves, they can minister to the Father and to His Son in ways of kindness and kind words. We're praying for you. We love you. We want to heal you, but in and of themselves, apart from the work of God, they have no power to do so. And Jesus reminds them that it must be by faith, faith in the power that God has, according to God's will and God's purposes. So you must come and say, be able to say with faith, like that of a small mustard seed, move this mountain and this mountain will move from here to there. And it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Why? Because of your faith in the one who can move it. There's no magic formula or incantation that the disciples could have said, no series of events that they walk through. Okay, so step one is uh, address the patient by name. Sir, you are going to be healed now. And step two is, oh, no, you skipped step three. You can imagine all of a sudden uh, the blubbering, uh, the blubbering work that's being done, fumbling over themselves. There's... None of that. God is not coerced to act based on a series of events that we employ or the disciples say or utter. But Jesus makes it clear that they have a lack of faith. They need to grow in their faith. They need to see that it takes a small amount of faith, a minuscule amount of faith, 
And God can do anything. Nothing is impossible for God and for us by means of faith. It's God who has all of the ability. God requires faith of us. So how does one who has little faith grow in their faith? How does one, like the disciples, like us, maybe, who struggle with small faith when things come, we're quickly diverted from our trust in Jesus. We quickly find ourselves struggling. Is God good? Does God see? Does God know what's happening? Where is God when all of these things are happening to me? How can evil exist in the world? All of these things that can come to us, big questions, circumstances that happen that are personal for us. How does one grow in his faith? Well, first of all, for the believer, there's going to be a desire to grow in their faith. One who says, I want to know God and trust in Him more is a mark of a believer. And as Jesus said, it's trusting with a grain of mustard seed faith that God is able to do these things. You look at other places in the New Testament or in the Scriptures, and you see believers calling out to Jesus in prayer, seeing how God answers that prayer. It's praying and trusting It's reading the Scriptures and seeing God to be faithful to His promises and character to people for thousands of years. It's believing that God will do what He says He will do based on His past actions. Faith in growing in it is trusting God even when His actions don't match our desire. The more we pray... The more difficulties we face when we lean on Him to be with us, to provide grace for that day, the more we obey His Word and see Him to be faithful, the more we long to be with Him for eternity, focusing on the gospel instead of our own health, wealth, and happiness, the more we're growing in faith and less in our trust of ourselves. We are are our own worst enemy when it comes to faith. We are the reason our faith is stunted. Our own strength, our own ability to trust in ourselves, our security found in ourselves, in our job, in our good health, in our eating habits can be the reason that we lack faith in God in all things. Our trust in ourselves can keep us from fully trusting God in any situation. The disciples trusted in what they could see themselves and what they know, their own strength, They did not trust in the power of God. Only God can move mountains. The issue is not your faith. Can it be strong enough to move a mountain? But can you actually believe that God can? Do you really believe that God can save you from hell? Do you think that's more of a miracle than God being able to heal someone? Move a mountain. Provide for your family sustained persecuted Christians, etc. The same saving God who has worked redemption from the foundations of the world and brought you to a place where you heard the gospel and believed it. It's an incredible miracle. That same God is the creator of the universe and the one who now says he can do all things. There is nothing he cannot do. And he holds the whole earth by the word of his power. Our God is able to do anything He desires to do. He is all-powerful, and it is our trust in Him and in His power. 
trusting in Him that watch our faith grow. There's a passage in 1 Peter chapter 1 that speaks to this. Notice the language that Peter uses. He begins in verse 3 of 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The same God that we call on to be powerful and to act in the midst of our difficulties or need for healing, the same God who we cry out to in the midst of trouble or difficulty is the same God who right now continues to, to, try to say that 10 times fast, to sustain you for a salvation ready to be revealed. The same God who has saved you is saving you by his power day after day, causing us to continue to rejoice as he goes on, Peter in verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him. We talked a little bit about that last week in the transfiguration. We have not seen him in that way. Though you have not seen him, you love him. That's faith. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How helpful Jesus was to his disciples. You look at this scenario, this exchange with them, and see a response like verse 17, oh, faithless and twisted generation, and can begin to think, how harsh, Jesus, take it easy on them. They have little faith. They might have a little self-confidence issue as well now. And how kind Jesus is, not to let them stay in a sense of shame, but to acknowledge the weak faith and to move them on in how to grow in it. It is loving for God to point out our sins and shortcomings and continue to give us grace and moving us on in His grace to greater obedience. I look at this and see a kind Jesus who continues to walk alongside His disciples, His followers, and help them to continue to grow in their faith. May we too, as we continue to see Jesus provide, God provide for us, as we just spent several days ago, thanking God for all of that He has done for us. Maybe most of that was food on the table at the time, but the people around it too. And we're thankful for all of these things that God has done. May God continue to grow us as we see Him continue to provide for us day after day in ways that are different maybe than what we would expect or want. But how God continues to grow us, leading us ultimately to the goal and that is to be united with Him for all of eternity, not just health, wealth, and happiness. Disciples, followers of Jesus, let us together continue to grow in our faith. The second section here in verse 22 and verse 23 is the shortest one of the three as we look at it. But disciples of Jesus, 
remember the gospel. As Jesus continues to walk alongside these disciples, helping them grow and preparing them for his death and resurrection, he mentions again for the second time clearly in verse 22 that he is going to be killed. He's going to rise again from the dead. Verse 22, as they're gathering in Galilee, Jesus says to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. It's coming soon. This is the second time he's made this pronouncement. The next time he will make it, they will be on their way to Jerusalem, actually heading towards the place where Jesus will die. In the midst of ministry and discipleship, healings, Jesus reminds them of the ultimate mission and why it is of most importance. It is good for us as Jesus' disciples to always take time, to make time, find time in the middle of our day, in the middle of discouragement, in the middle of a difficult news report, to remember the gospel. The gospel is the person and work of Jesus on the cross for sinners. The good news, the gospel, is the person and work of Jesus on the cross for sinners like us. That is of greatest importance. We can do a lot of things for God, and so could the disciples. But it can lose its focus and become nothing sometimes but trying to earn favor with God or merit grace from Him if we lose sight of the gospel. The gospel reminds us that it is the power of God to transform our sinful hearts into ones that now long for Him and desire to love Him and obey Him. How did the disciples respond to Jesus' remembering of the gospel as He proclaims again what is to come? Well, they responded probably like we would, or anyone else would, who heard that their friend was going to die and rise again. They were sad. They were distressed. So why would Jesus tell them this again? Why bring up this difficult, hard news once again? Why make them sad beforehand? Wouldn't it be kind of Jesus to just let them be sad when it actually happens and he's dead and gone, knowing in a few days he's going to rise again and they're going to be joyful? Why not just let them be sad then? Why make them sad now in preparation for more sadness. Why are they so sad? Why are they distressed? When resurrection is coming, don't they know what resurrection means? Don't they know that he's going to die but be raised again three days later? So why are they so distressed? We can intellectually know God's ways are perfect and still be sad when something difficult happens. As God's people, we most of all, can grieve and trust at the same time. Christians do not have to be the ones with the quippy phrases of hallelujah, praise the Lord, all glory to God in the midst of death and suffering and not allow us or others to weep. No, Christians weep. Christians mourn. Jesus wept. Jesus mourned. Jesus was sad when his friend died. Christians are sad when their friends are sick or die. And yet it is Christians, Christians who can weep while hoping, 
Christians who can weep and yet rejoice in the final resurrection that is to come. Christians who can weep while trusting. Christians who, in a sense, can walk and chew gum at the same time and in no way mean offense to those who are not believers, but one could not weep with hope if Jesus has not died and risen from the dead. I think in one sense this is put in here as Matthew reminds them of where they're headed. And yet for us, it's stuck right in the middle of two other unrelated scenarios. And for us, it would be like Wednesday at 1030 in the morning when nothing necessarily is happening out of the ordinary. May we as God's people be remembering the gospel, the good news that Jesus came and willingly gave his life for us, was resurrected from the dead, that we might be resurrected as well to newness of life, to remember that Christ came in the flesh and went all the way down to the point of death that he might be raised and exalted now at the right hand of the Father like Steve read earlier when he prayed from Philippians chapter 2. Again, I think Jesus, as he's walking through life with his disciples, has to share difficult news with them. The fact of his impending death, the fact that they have little faith, and is incredibly kind. Incredibly kind to remind them again of what is going to happen, so that when it does happen, it's not a, what? He never told us this was going to happen. But, oh, right, this is exactly as he said it would be. And again, their faith would be strengthened as they watch the faithful God do according to his will, as was prophesied, and as he said it would. Jesus is gently shepherding his disciples through tragedy by informing and preparing beforehand. The same can be true for us as God's people. As we walk ourselves through difficulty beforehand, how would I respond? How would I help my children to respond? to great tragedy? How would I respond? How would I walk and shepherd my children or this church with our elders through great tragedy? Brothers and sisters, let us talk now in kindness with our children about death. You say, why? Why do that to them now? Why not when it happens then walk them through it. Let us learn, I think, from the example of Jesus, who reminds us of how we can talk about difficult subjects, remembering the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ, to not be fixated about death, but to share with them what it is that happens when someone dies, to be able to share with them the hope that is in when a believer passes from this life and is finally alive for the very first time when they see Jesus face to face, be, be honest, when someone dies that they know or you know and does not know Jesus. Be honest about life after death. That means we know what the scriptures say. Don't steer away from it because it's hard stuff. Your kids need answers to hard questions. Shameless plug, there's actually a book out there for 10 hard questions teenagers ought to ask themselves about Christianity. It's a fantastic book. Kids have hard questions. They need answers, biblical answers to hard questions. What they and we do not need is quasi-spiritual, unbiblical nonsense 
that somebody else once told us, or that sounds good. They're in a better place. Are they? And what does that look like? Who are they with? Take them to the scriptures. Study the scriptures with them. Tell them you don't know if you don't know and study it with them. Don't end with us. I don't know what happens. Let's go to the scriptures. I'm not quite sure. What this will do when you apply the gospel to everyday life, when you are remembering the gospel regularly, and questions about difficulty, death, and hardship come, is to have a habit of remembering, staying focused on what is of greatest import to us as Christians. So when difficulty comes, as it will, not just being pessimistic about life, but as it will, we respond as one brother did who shared with us recently in Sunday school. How might God be glorified in this? When news of great difficulty comes that drastically might change your way of life, how might God be glorified in this? Is that our first response? I don't know that it would be mine. I need to remember the gospel. Monday morning at 5 a.m. when I'm reading my Bible, Tuesday night at 7.30 when I'm frustrated because bedtime isn't going the way that I was hoping. I need to remember the goodness of the gospel that grants me hope and faith in the midst of difficulties of life, that God is preparing me, my children, this church, for greater glory than we can imagine, for something far more than getting to bed on time and having a calm, cool, collected evening. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter he spends talking a lot about the resurrection, and he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What is it? Get out your notebook and pen, right? What is of first importance? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. A faithful God bringing about a faithful redemption by means of the person and work of Jesus on the cross for sinners. Of first importance for us is the gospel. And remembering the gospel, there is hope. There is joy. There is sadness and crying and questions of what will happen, why things happen. But there is a rock-solid hope in God who will right all wrongs in the end and take us to himself. Disciples of Jesus, remember the gospel. Thirdly, the last section we look at. Followers of Jesus, don't give unreasonable offense. Okay, right? It's a little bit different of a scenario. This one's a little strange. So it's okay for us to be able to say that. We're not doing any disrespect to the text or to Jesus himself, but to have the advice of go fish, and the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and there's a coin. Well, you can know what I'm going to do the rest of that Saturday. I'm still fishing. There might be more coins. Who said you had to stop at one? Okay, if there's a shekel in one, let's go for two, four. Multiply your money. The two drachma tax that is mentioned here that Jesus has questioned about was a tax that was levied on all adult Jewish males. And it was an annual thing. The idea was that it was a Jewish tax on its own people to keep up the temple. Unlike Roman taxes, this one was expected to be paid as a patriotic duty. Two drachmas would be equal to half a shekel. 
This temple tax found its basis, or those who imposed it found its basis in Exodus chapter 30, where each person, in being numbered in the census, was to give an account of their life by means of giving of this half shekel. You shall take the atonement money for the people of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. The money that was paid into the temple treasury is, was in a special currency and would have required the services of money changers. Those who were traveling in and out would come to give their tax at the time of Passover, often when they were there in Jerusalem in person. Technically, the Jewish men would need to pay the tax to the authorities of the temple and the ones who were the, collecting this at the temple itself, most likely. And yet here Jesus is talking to Peter because Peter's been confronted about, is your master, your teacher going to pay the tax? What kind of a guy is your teacher? Does he obey all of the customs of our people? And Peter says he does. Jesus, hearing the conversation, possibly when Peter enters the house, speaks to him about who is it that's ought to pay this tax? The sons or those from others? And Peter says, from others, not the sons of the king. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Well, who is the one that the tax is to be paid for? It's to the authorities over the temple. Who are the authorities over the temple? Ultimately, it's God himself, right? It's the Lord's temple. It's not a Jewish leader's temple. It's not the priest's temple. It's God's temple. It's God's house. And so the authority over it, the king in Jesus' scenario, is God himself. And who is the Son of God? Exactly. Jesus himself, who is free from paying the tax. And yet, what does Jesus do? He commands his disciple to go fish, get a fish, and open the fish's mouth and get a coin out of it. What we don't have in this story, and we're all dying to hear, is how that happened. We don't actually see Peter fishing and getting a coin and flipping it up in his, you know, hand and taking it to the temple. We would have loved to have actually have seen that or heard of how that fishing story went. The fish was this big. The coin was this shiny. Jesus tells him to go and to pay the tax. He doesn't technically have to. He's the authority over the temple. He's the one that, in a sense, has all say over the temple and what ought to happen. But he says he does so not to give unreasonable offense. The word that is used there, to not be offended, is the Greek word skandalizo. Scandalizo. We get the word scandalized from it, as you can hear it. It means to cause one to be shocked or angered by something someone did or said. Matthew used the same word back in Matthew 15, 12. In that scenario, Jesus was being confronted because the disciples were not washing their hands when they ate. And in that scenario, Jesus doesn't take the rebuttal or doesn't take the offense that is given to the Pharisees and say, okay, disciples, you really ought to wash your hands. Whereas here he says, you know, we don't want to give an offense, so we should pay this temple tax. But in Matthew 15, 12, he doesn't do that. In that chapter, Jesus kind of heaps on a little bit more offense. You remember maybe the words that he's giving and the disciples say to them, oh, easy, you're offending the Pharisees by saying these things. And Jesus rebuts them that it is they who are dishonoring the word of God, making it void by their actions. 
Remember, what comes out of a person's heart, that's what defiles them, not eating with unwashed hands. So why is it Jesus is okay to offend or scandalize the Pharisees back in Matthew 15, but not here in Matthew 17? Well, one commentator says that the scandal in Matthew 15 was a matter of fundamental principles for Jesus, one which exposed the deep divide between his attitude to the law and that of the Pharisees. They were trying to change the Scriptures and what it said, that the law of God was binding on them even in regards to ceremonial issues like washing your hands before you ate. Whereas here, in Matthew 17, it's simply a matter of custom, where compliance, even if necessary, will do no harm. And to flout it would serve no useful purpose. Don't give unnecessary offense. Go ahead and pay the tax so as not to give offense or to scandalize in this scenario. Disciples of Jesus, Christians, let's not give unnecessary offense, setting up stumbling blocks where they don't need to be set up. There are things in which Christians should stand firm on and not give in on, not cause a scene about, and there are things that we shouldn't, that it's not worth it to flout it about. It serves no useful purpose. Look at me and all that I can do. Look at me and what I don't have to do. I'm a Christian. It is wisdom and discernment, staying focused on the mission Jesus has us here to do that allows us to let some things, while irritating maybe, slide off our backs and other things to be something we won't budge on. It is wisdom and discernment. It is doing what these things earlier, the scenarios we've already seen, growing in your faith, remembering the gospel that roots us in wisdom and discernment, staying focused on the mission we've been given. Later in Matthew 22, the Pharisees asked Jesus about paying the poll tax to Caesar. Jesus tells them there to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. One must know, is this Caesar's? Or is this God's? Who is the authority here? When something is being asked of you or myself by governing authorities, and you can obey it and do so because it is right and good and according to God's higher principles, then wonderful. Obey. Don't cause a stir. Stay focused on our mission as Christians to make disciples of all neighbors and nations, but don't ever obey if it causes you to sin. But if you're being told to violate God's principles, to call wrong wrong right and right wrong, to be forced to go against conscience or to sin in so doing, then your higher authority, God Almighty, calls you to stand firm and not obey. For us as Christians, wisdom and discernment says, I know what hill I'm going to die on and what ones I'm not willing to die on. And wisdom and discernment also says, that I know that the hills are going to be different for you than they are for me. Even though biblical wisdom and principles will give us flat out yes and no, right and wrong, there are ways in which walking in wisdom says, I cannot pay this tax, I won't pay this tax, and yeah, Peter, go get a fish, get a coin out of its mouth and pay the tax. As disciples seek to do what Jesus calls them to do, to remember the gospel, grow in their faith. The way they respond to cultural customs or mandates 
are going to look different. We can take an example from a non-confrontational issue, okay? We don't want to do any confrontation here. An example like the COVID vaccine, right? (laughs) Just say that one follower of Jesus, like you and I, maybe, ministers to a people group in another country on the other side of the globe. And because of COVID, they're required to get the vaccine if they would like to travel back to that country or to stay in that country where their ministry is. They may know that there's risks of the shot. They know how the shot is being produced or manufactured. They have strong biblical convictions. What do they do? I would guess and maybe hope that in a lot of scenarios that most missionaries chose to get the vaccine if it meant continuing their mission. If they say that I already know the risks of being in this foreign country, I choose to live in, let's say, Kenya. I choose to live here. I already have to have certain vaccines to be here. What's another vaccine to cause me to do my mission? If the vaccine, in a way, is not violating biblical principle, then to be able to say that I've already done things that could be determined as Uh, not the safest of things by living in the country I live in. Obviously, some countries are far more dangerous for Christians to live in than others. We've been spending a little bit of time in November looking at some of those countries. We've put information uh, out for you on some of those very dangerous countries in which it is for Christians to live. And yet there's dangers of that sort and dangers of another sort. And for a missionary to say, God knows by walking according to conscience, what I know of the scriptures, what I know of these things, this is being required of me, and God knows my mission is this. May God have mercy on my soul, and may he continue to see people come to faith in Christ. When I went to Kenya for a summer, I had to have several vaccines uh, just to get over there, Uh, shots, vaccines of different sorts, and while I was there, I had to take a malaria medicine that gave me the craziest dreams at night just to travel there, uh, just to be there for a summer. Uh, during a year in college. You could also say another guy who's standing on a different hill is being required to get the vaccine for his work in the States because he's a doctor and all healthcare employees must get it. He knows if he doesn't get the shot, he loses a great income, financial security, and a lot of respect maybe in the medical community. But he also feels more than convinced that this is going too far. He cannot cave in. What should he do? If his conscience tells him, no, it is for him, this is a hill worth dying on. Yet he may decide that it is or that it isn't. He might see and be convinced that how the shot is made, the side effects on others, or forcing it upon people is wrong and he cannot obey. But it's according to conscience and biblical principle. He desires to walk in wisdom and discernment, knowing that for him, he can't make the decision for someone else. But for him and how God has led him, this is the decision that he must make for he and his family. And for us as God's people, walking through this, we see that there is times of not making unreasonable offense either way. And so the position that I might take on a non-confrontational issue like the COVID vaccine might look different than somebody else next door to me or in the seat in front of me or behind me. And Jesus says to this scenario, sure, I'll pay your tax, but I don't have to. Only God's laws can mandate what I must do. 
However, Christian, be sure if you say that you must follow God instead of man, that we ought really to know what it is that God says and desire to follow it. Obey our leaders over us, Romans 13 says, right? As long as they are not contradicting God's laws. And while one person says they are not, they are not another might say they are. And good Christian brothers and sisters, both using biblical understanding, wisdom from good and holy people, or godly people, and their common sense, their consciences might disagree. Walk in wisdom, not seeking to offend unreasonably. What would that look like? It would look like for the missionary who says, I'm going to get the vaccine so that I might minister the gospel to those who don't know, who in no way bashes another missionary who says, I'm coming off the field because my principles that I hold to won't let me get it. And to the medical professional who doesn't get it and loses his job, what it looks like is another Christian not saying, you moron, you've got an incredible job. Why would you leave it? Just get the shot and get back to work. But for the doctor to be able to say, I walked in wisdom and discernment. I walked according to biblical principles. I had good advice given to me from other people. I looked into it myself, and I've studied these things. This is what God has led me to do, according to conscience, and not rubbing that in the nose of someone who gets the shot. So whether you get the shot or you don't get the shot, according to God's wisdom, we desire to walk in love towards others, remembering the gospel, desiring to grow in our faith as his followers, and not giving offense unreasonably. It's interesting that Jesus, in different scenarios, does both, right? He gives offense where it's needed to be given to the Pharisees. You're going to twist God's scriptures, I'm going to give you offense, and rightfully so. But here in this scenario, sure, pay the tax, fella. Let it wash off your back. Another scenario, give to Caesars what is Caesars and what is God's to God. We are the Lord's. We are not our own. And so we trust in Him. We walk by His example. We obey His word. Walk according to biblical principles. Desiring to remember the gospel. Desiring to not give offense unreasonably. Christians, followers of Jesus, let us do just that. Let us desire to grow in our faith, trusting in the one who has saved us and redeemed us, who holds all things by the word of his power, and continuing to walk according to the consciousness that he has given to us, according to strong biblical principles, knowing that we will certainly make mistakes. And the decisions that we do make sometimes, maybe it wasn't the right decision. And maybe we find out later that it wasn't. And maybe we find out later that it was, and we're grateful that God had mercy and led us in the right direction. We are not perfect beings. We are not the ones who are all-powerful and know all things, and so we need help to grow in our faith and to trust the one who is. So in every and all circumstances, brothers and sisters, let us remember that we are followers of Jesus. He is not our toy to be played with and to be made into our likeness. There will come a time when we as Christians must stand and stand firm, we must. And may God, by his power, cause us to stand firm on the truth of the gospel until he comes again or he calls us home. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we are so thankful for your word, for the work of Jesus on the cross, the gospel that is true. That the eternal Son of God came into flesh, 
took on flesh, became man for us, that he might die to redeem us. That is of first importance. Father, help us to remember, to stay focused on what is of greatest importance for us as your followers. Continue to root us in the scriptures. Continue to grow us in our faith. Help us to remember the gospel and not unreasonably give offense to others. And in so doing, we pray that you would allow the kingdom of heaven to continue to expand by means of us remaining focused on the mission that you have called us to do as your followers. Would you continue to allow us to see people coming from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, from Ellensburg, from Kittitas, those who come over from Seattle for school, those who are attending here at CWU or who are living here, working here from all over. We continue to see people coming to faith in Jesus because of how we love them, how we love the gospel, and keep a priority on loving you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbor as ourself, and not fixating on things that could unreasonably offend. Keep us fixated on the gospel and the gospel and everything. Father, would you continue to root us in your word? And if there is someone here this morning who doesn't know the gospel, Father, would you open their eyes? Would you help them to see their sin and their need for Jesus? And this morning, I pray that you would have them cry out to you in repentance of their sins and that they would trust in Jesus. Father, we pray that you would continue to work in their hearts, drawing them to faith in you. And Father, we know the scriptures say that for anyone who confesses their sins and calls out to you, that you will save them indeed. And for that, we put our hope of our lives in. And we are grateful that you are a God who is faithful. Faithful who calls, who also will do it. Father, would you continue to do that in us now as your followers and as those who soon will be. And we pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.